that I don't um, have to spend a lot of time proving to you all that this world isn't how it should be. This is normally the, the beginning part of the sermons where you you know, say something and then you give some kind of illustration to get everyone on your side. And it was like, oh yeah, we're all with you. But I think we all kind of get the world isn't how it should be. I don't need to. We could spend a lot of time talking about that. Um, so I'm, not, I'm just not going to do that, though. I'm not going to waste that time. What I do want to um, maybe have us start doing is uh, to think about where your world isn't right, your own, like in your own experience, in your own life, where you have experienced disaster, and maybe even because of things that you've done yourself. You said something you shouldn't have, and now there's like emotional fallout or something like that. How have you let others down, and what did that feel like? So maybe we've all just thought about one small, tiny aspect of how this world is and should be, and how we've contributed to that. This world is full of disasters. Some of them are outside of us and not under our control. Some of them have been because of what we've done. And then we read this passage from Isaiah... And as we sit in our own disasters, we hear the promise of a new world. These verses in Isaiah don't just come out of nowhere. The context is um, impending disaster that the Israelites deserved. uh, The context is there's um, even just this previous chapter. These Assyrians, who are this outside other nation, this super strong kind of army, this kingdom that's growing, is going to come in from outside Israel and destroy Israel. And they're going to kill everybody. And the people that they don't kill, they're going to take away as slaves. They'll be forced away from their home, forced to live somewhere else. I mean, the Assyrians were um, kind of... Like uh, almost like the picture of what unclean people look like, like what what um, the kind of people who deserve God's judgment. Those are the Assyrians, but God is using the Assyrians for His own judgment against Israel. And the reason why He's doing this, the reason why this is coming, is because God, who's been so patient for so long with His own people, the Israelites, is now coming in judgment against them. They've been warned over and over and over for generations, for hundreds of years, but they continue to seek wholeness without God. They continue to want the kingdom without the king. So God's going to use this Assyrian army as his tool of judgment, but in that judgment, so that's previous verses, and then we hear verse 11, or chapter 11, and in that judgment, there's also a rescue that's promised. There is salvation. So the Israelites may have deserved judgment, but God also reserves rescue for his people. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Ten verses that talk about salvation in the future, despite the horrible disasters that are about to come and are now here. Because we all, like the Israelites, will experience disaster. And by ourselves, that's all we'll get. We won't get to experience its rescue. We need God to rescue us from our disasters. We need the hope of a new world to influence how we go about this world today. This new world that we hear about in chapter 11 is completely different from ours because it has a completely different leader. Uh, and um, it, there's not even a name of this leader. There's like a bunch of metaphors. There's a shoot in verse 1. There's like a, a root in verse 10. There's a branch. And, and then in verse 6, there's a little child. There's a shoot, there's a branch in the root. All these are descriptions for that little child who's going to lead this new world. And we're talking about this around Jesus' birth. So I'll give you one guess. Colin would know the answer. The answer to any kind of question in the Bible. Colin, what's this about? Um, Jesus? You're right, somehow. 
always right. Um, and that's what we get to particularly celebrate during this time, is Jesus' birth and what it means for us. And Jesus' birth and what it means in uh, Isaiah 11 is the founding of a new world. There's disaster in our lives. The Bible is brutally honest about that, more honest than we are about it, but disaster isn't the final word. So this announcement made years and years before Jesus, tells us that when Jesus is born, that's the beginning of God's rescue from our disasters. That's the beginning of something new. There's a new world because there's a new leader. Just as in many kingdoms, governments, um, the culture can be defined by its leader. That can be a bit of a scary thing when we think of our political leaders, especially when I think about my political leader. Do we really want our culture defined that way? But that's how we we find... um, the people of Israel kind of over and over. If it was a good king, there were people who responded obediently to God. If there was a bad king, there were people who were disobedient. As goes the king, the leader, so go the people. So the description of this leader is also a description of how the people, how this world is going to be. And that's what we're going to focus on and just kind of, we're just going to walk through these verses. Um, and as we walk through them, there's kind of three main areas. One is uh, delight. One is justice. And the other is peace. But we'll start with delight first. Um, we, we begin with the delight in God himself. The previous rulers that uh, Israel has experienced are people who were obsessed with their own power, maintaining their own power. Basically, trusting in yourself means you have to kind of maintain your own power to make it. And that leads to a culture of people obsessed with their own power and maintaining their own power. And that is always at the expense of others. But not this leader. Not this leader. In verse 1, um, just have a look with me here. I'm just going to look through these verses, so keep your, your Bible or your um, app open. Uh, we have a shoot from the rubble. So in the aftermath of disaster, remember these Assyrians have come in and destroyed everything. they destroyed the homes and taken away the people. But there is a shoot that comes up. And verse 10 talks about the same kind of thing. In that day, a root will stand. A root and a shoot. Those are like very small minuscule things that you don't find unless you're looking for it. But in the landscape of kind of that smoldering ash, there's still this green shoot, this green root that persists. And on this shoot, in verse 2, it says the Spirit of the Lord is there, rests on him, rests on this shoot, is laid upon him, is part of him. It's a mutual delight. And what is the Spirit of the Lord, um, what does that lead to? What leads to wisdom, leads to understanding, Leads to good counsel, leads to might or to strength, leads to knowledge of the Lord. I mean, all these are kind of parts of a whole. This is a good leader. This is like the kind of person we want to lead us. Someone who's not just strong, but also strong and wise. Uh, I mean, if you have one without another, like um, someone who is very understanding but has no wisdom, you have a very kind of empathetic fool. Like, that's not helpful. But you have someone who's uh, very understanding and wise, and so someone who is empathetic and also can make good decisions. That's great. Someone who's strong enough to actually uh, put into place um, the good counsel. And verse 3, the very beginning of verse 3, all of that kind of spirit of the Lord resting on him, wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, then it culminates in, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is something we hear about a lot in the Old Testament especially. And maybe not something that we understand very well. Like, what does that mean? Are we supposed to be afraid of God? Or, or what, uh, what's the deal here? Well, first, what it isn't, fear of the Lord is not just being scared of God, and that's it. Uh, it's something bigger than that. Maybe a working definition but could be living in awe of who God is. It's a, a reverence, but also a love. 
it's it's actually like the, we're gonna look at this for a second. Maybe look at three different sides. One, it's rational. It's what we think. Fear of the Lord has to do with knowing God's commandments, knowing His statutes. Has to be um, uh, about understanding how God has told us how to live and remembering them. That's an aspect of fear of the Lord. It's also what we do. So it's what we think. It's also what we do because it speaks to living in a way that's um, that's right. How everyone should live. It's living at a, like a good standard that everyone would recognize as good, like being generous or being kind. You don't have to convince someone that generosity is a good thing or being kind is a good thing. But if someone lives that way and lives that way in such a um, in such a way that isn't forced to live that way, it's not like government-induced generosity or something like that. But they're living that way of their own free will. That's that's a, the moral aspect of what it means to fear the Lord. But it's also emotional. It's what we feel. An emotional response, um, like fear, love, trust, those are emotional responses we have. In the book of Deuteronomy, fear of the Lord is equated with love of God over and over and over again. It's synonymous. Later on in Isaiah, God's people distort the fear of the Lord and they try and boil it down um, just to rule keeping. In Isaiah 29 it says, uh, the Lord says, these people, talking about his people who are not faithful to him, come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based merely on human rules they have been taught. So if we know all the things and do all the things and don't feel all the things, don't have the emotional kind of response, we're still not quite getting fear of the Lord. So it's knowing, it's doing, and it's feeling. It's a kind of a full-orbed thing. Fear of the Lord leads to passionate prayer. That's what Proverbs talks about. Fear of the Lord leads to humility. I think... One reason that uh, this love and fear thing for us is hard to get, because often we put them as completely separate or against themselves, is because generally we aren't in awe of many things ever, really. Like, we just don't have a lot of things that we are living under and, like, living in awe of. um, Because we are the most powerful. We are the kings. We are in charge of everything. And so if we're in charge of it all, then how could we possibly feel like the weight of, of something being more glorious and larger than us? kind of hard for us to even to imagine. Like our imaginations are stunted in that way. But the reality is our lives are always lived before this holy God. The one who has power to bring judgment or mercy. And we are under his mercy. There's a commentator that defined fear of the Lord as that affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law. So there's a relationship there, but there's not a, um, it's not a casualness. There's a love there, but there's also a reverence. And all of this, this is what this new leader uh, is promised to delight in. That's what he's going to delight in. He's going to delight in the fear of the Lord. Now, of course, this is like very much unlike ourselves. Probably rarely we would say, yeah, I get that. I think I delight in the fear of the Lord. The way I think, the way I what things I do, the way I feel. Like, I think a lot of us are like, whoa, this is like kind of next level existence because really we're mostly in awe of ourselves and that just kind of inhibits ourselves. Um, I have found more people in England have watched The West Wing than friends in America. Have you guys all seen The West Wing? There's nobody here except for Michael. <laughs> One person, oh, this is a bad ratio. If that is only because you told me to, so. Oh, yeah. <laughs> So maybe my theory doesn't hold up. <laughs> <laughs> I need yeah. to say yes for an illustration. 
Well, it's even better. Now I get to describe it. Let's just talk about the West Wing. No, uh, in the West Wing, it's a basically like about this one president's administration over two terms. Uh, the president's name is Josiah Bartlett, and he's basically like America's dad. He's like exactly who you want a president to be. He's thoughtful, he's kind, but he also gets down to business when he needs to. And every he like rallies people around him, and he's you know does stuff like that helps other people that people don't know about. Um, and he, you know he has this like great vision for what America could be. It's, it's basically like how it's not just. America's dad is like, could you be my dad, Josiah Bartlett? Like, like whether you're Republican or Democrat, he happens to be a Democrat in the in the series, but he's basically like appeals to everybody. Um, he's he's the president that we all want, but not one that we will elect. So it's like one of those things of um, a leader that's written about that every that is easy to get everybody on their side. And you just understand, oh, I totally get how he could lead a country really well. That's kind of what's going on here. Whether you've seen the West Wing or not, um, that's, I promise you that's a seriously what it's like. Um, but it, so Josiah Bartlett, he has principles, um, but he's not an idealist. He, he has a, a kind of a wide umbrella where people can come around him. He, he's inclusive to a point. Um, he's thoughtful. He rules in a way that seems right. And the way that every single episode ends is basically that. There's rarely a time where... Josiah Bartlett makes a clear mistake and everyone knows it because he's a good kind of leader. And if he does make a mistake, he'll own up to it. He's the type of president we all want. Just like this kind of leader, one who delights in the fear of the Lord, is the kind of leader that we want. Like that's the kind I would love to have a leader like that. It's it's not it's not a hard sell. Like, yes, that's delight let's, let's have a leader who's gonna delight in the fear of the Lord because we need it ourselves. But it's not just delight. This leader also, these next few verses, talk about justice. So uh, the end of verse 3 says, He will judge by what he sees, uh, not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide what he hears with his ears. It doesn't mean that he's blind to like, what's going on in front of him. It just means he will look at more than what's going on right in front of him and judge well. He, this, kind of, this kind of judge can't be bought, can't be bribed. And also, look at the, ver- the beginning of verse 4. He judges on behalf of the needy and the poor, which is generally, in our experience, the opposite of how laws are made, the opposite of how a justice system works. The needy and the poor are often the people who are burdened by corrupt laws, burdened by corrupt lawmakers. Um, the history and presence of institutional racism in both of our countries is a helpful illustration of this, I think. But this leader judges the needy and poor with righteousness in the beginning of verse 4. In all ways, he handles the affairs of the most vulnerable. He handles them well. But how does he execute this judgment? Well, the end of verse 4 tells us what kind of power he has. He has the ability to strike the earth, that through his breath, the wicked are destroyed. That's insane. What kind of ruler is that? I've never met a ruler like that. Probably good that I've never met a ruler like that. Because if someone with this kind of otherworldly power like that is corrupt, and we're all doomed. We're all going to die, and we'll all be destroyed. But verse 5 says, righteousness is what remains and everything's taken away. It says righteousness will be his belt. Um, that word for belt could be a very polite translation, because basically it means when this person, all his clothes are stripped away, this is the only thing that remains, righteousness. When all this person's clothes are stripped off, righteousness still remains. Nothing can deter them from their pursuit and character of righteousness. 
So that's the kind of person that I want judging with that kind of power, someone who's righteous. And this kind of justice isn't just when he feels like it because he's faithful. Faithfulness is he's consistent. Oh, is he going to be righteous today? Or is he going to be in a bad mood today? Or should I talk to him about this today? I mean, how many people have had to you know, navigate, ooh, they're in a good mood now. Maybe I should ask for this, this day off. You know? This person is consistent all the way. We know what we're getting. When we lived in Orlando years ago, uh, the local government at the time passed a really strange law. They made it illegal to feed groups of people for free. Um, I think it was like if it was a group of 30 people or so for free, it was illegal to feed them. Like you had to pay, you had to charge. Uh, who would bear like the brunt of that very strange law? Like homeless people. Basically, Orlando, the city of the mouse, of Mickey Mouse, didn't like the idea that there were homeless people like there. So like, well, how can we make it not hospitable to homeless people? Let's find a way where they can't get free food. So it was actually literally illegal to feed like groups of homeless people. Some people had like massive kind of staged feeding protests and got arrested and things like that. Um, I was not that amazing. Um, but I, uh, I had some friends who were really amazing and on occasion I would go out with them um, and hand out free breakfast to people who were waiting in line for day labor jobs. So they had like these businesses that would have jobs like landscaping or painting or things like that and if you showed up and you got in the queue early enough you'd have a job that day and you'd get paid that day. Most of the people that lined up that early because they would open around 6 so they'd get in line around 5. Most of the people who were lining up around that time are either homeless or very close to it or living in a shelter or something like that. So we would show up crazy early. I think we'd get there like 4.30, it was horrible. Um, but we had all this food that people would donate and give them coffee uh, and just basically because they were standing in line and um, we often did it in the winter when it was a little bit cold. I mean, it's Florida, so it's not really cold, but colder. And basically just give them food. And it was illegal for us, but nobody really cared because they weren't, like, it wasn't like this was a massive policing uh, position. The police themselves knew, like, this law is kind of unjust, so we're not going to, like, spend a whole lot of time policing it. So even though we were giving, like, free food out in a way that we shouldn't have, no one really cared because this law didn't really affect us because no one's going to come out at, like, 5.30 to arrest, you know, four people handing out free food to people who are actually wanting to work. It was unjust law in that area. And to some extent, even the people who were supposed to execute that law knew it, so they didn't. A lack of policing kind of proved the case. This leader in Isaiah, though, doesn't make bad laws. And the laws that he does make, he always executes faithfully over and over and over. So he's not just, um, he, uh, there's delight, there's justice, but there's also peace. And that's kind of the bulk of the end of here. Um, we have these animals that should not be hanging out with each other. The wolves with the lamb, the leopards with the goat, the calves with the lion. A bear doesn't feed on the cow. In fact, the cow is the one who feeds the bear. It's more than just kind of um, people being happy by themselves. The cow, the, the prey, is the one feeding the predator. It's a mutual kind of peace. Lions eat straw like an ox. Lions aren't supposed to do that. They're supposed to eat us, but not under the reign of this leader. I mean, there is so much peace here. It's like saturated with peace so much that a young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. Just the idea of thinking about that freaks me out. When I grew up in Florida, like, I know it's bad to put your hands in places where things shouldn't be because there will be snakes there. I was just telling somebody the other day, like, the fear of opening up your mailbox and seeing a snake in there is not completely unfounded. It has happened on a couple of occasions. I mean, it's almost like some kind of reality TV challenge or something. If you put your hand to the nest of vipers, you will win 50 grand, or you can go home a loser. 
Well, basically, everything that we could be afraid of, wolves, leopards, um, vipers, lions, everything we could be afraid of out there is not going to harm us in this new world. And there's no way this passage can make a stronger case. It's kind of like repeated, repeated, repeated. This is completely covered in peace. Now, fear leads to a lack of justice. We fear that homeless people are going to come over and take over the cool vibe we have in Orlando, so we're going to try and kick them out. Fear also leads to not delighting in God. Fearing the world doesn't stem from fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord means we have nothing else to fear because God's in charge. Without that, we're left with anxiety and depression and all the horrible things. So peace is not only the lack of conflict. It's also the flourishing of everybody. When peace is really present and going on, it's not just a lack of conflict, people living separately, it's mutual human flourishing in all ways. And why is there this kind of peace here? In verse 9, it says, For, so here's a because, why is this happening? The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. When the earth is filled with the knowledge of the Lord, there's peace. And who has this knowledge? Back in verse 2. The one who the Spirit on the Lord rests. This leader we've been talking about. The earth being filled with the knowledge of the Lord leads to the flourishing of all human beings. So the presence of this leader leads to a new world where all will flourish. And all of this points to Jesus' birth. Jesus is from the line of Jesse, as we see in verse 1. Matthew takes great pains to start his genealogy from Jesse because he's telling us this Isaiah passage is about Jesus. When Jesus was baptized, the Spirit rested on him, just as verse 2 talks about the Spirit of the Lord resting on this person. And Jesus is the only one who really delights in God himself, the only one who can rule with justice, who can rule powerfully, and the only one who can bring the peace that we all want and crave. So the Christmas story is the story of that little child in verse 6 leading us out of our disasters and into this world of flourishing. And this promised world isn't just something to think about in the future, because Jesus has already been born. This world has already been started. Jesus started bringing this new world in when he was on earth, and now he's in heaven reigning as it's advancing upon this world we live now. And that is our hope that we have today. That's the, that kind of future hope ought to influence how we live in the present. Because the way this new world is described should inform how we go about living in our present world. Now, this leader holds up the ideal for us, and of course, we're not going to be perfect, we're not going to be ideal, but um, we shouldn't miss out on the benefits, though, of living in a way that kind of mirrors or reflects this new leader. So the question for us, if we take these three things and maybe apply them to us, how do we delight in God himself, like in our own lives? This literally can't be done if we don't take time to read his word or talk to him in prayer. And this work isn't done by ourselves. We need to involve others. That's why we want to be about core groups or missional communities um, or even just kind of normal conversation over unplanned informal events like normal human beings. <coughs> and the fear of the Lord should be our overarching theme in how we live our lives. Also, what about justice? Are we concerned with justice in our lives? Living with justice and righteousness means doing good for others often at our own expense. This is why we want to be a part of helping the needy and the poor in our area, because we think this is what Jesus is all about. And this is why we um, want to partner with Reach Out to the Community, because we think what they're doing is a reflection of the kingdom, even if they don't use those words themselves. And what about peace? Peace must stem from the knowledge of the Lord. If peace comes from anywhere else other than the knowledge of the Lord, 
is not the kind that comes from the earth being filled with this peace as the waters cover the sea. And that kind of peace that doesn't come from knowledge of the Lord is a counterfeit peace. And instead of getting peace, what we'd end up doing is trading that for anxiety, the opposite. So are we formed by God's story or our own story? When we talk about our accomplishments, do we make God the hero or do we rob him of his own glory as we see the small, as a small little tidbit of this new world that's coming in that we get to play a small part in? Do we make much of God in our daily lives or is he sequestered off in some kind of back room that we leave for private faith, which is really where faith goes to die? Now, just briefly running through these, and maybe as I've kind of talked about the specific application to us, we don't measure up. I know I don't. None of us do. Like None of us have any kind of semblance of this where we, where we ought to be in these three areas. We're not delighting in God. We aren't working for justice. We're often combatants, not administrators of peace. But then look at verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for all the peoples. The nations will rally to him. How, how can that be true? The nations rally to him, but we are the nations. We're corrupt. We are the people that the rod is striking. The rod is striking the earth because of our injustice. We start off the sermon thinking of a very small section of maybe how we haven't, um, how we brought disaster in our own lives. We've all done it. This sounds like great news, and it is good news, because in light of all the corruption and and brokenness in this world, we're given a new image of what this world ought to be. But this is also bad news, because who can escape this kind of judgment? The rod strikes the earth. The Lord, Jesus, judges in relationship with the needy and the poor. They're not immune to his judgment either. It comes to all. So how can justice and peace possibly coexist? Of course we know, just like Colin does, the answer is in Jesus. Peace and justice both coexist in Jesus. When we talked about righteousness, we gave the um, kind of definition, working definition maybe, is righteousness is doing good for others at the expense of yourself. And righteousness for this leader is there when everything is stripped away. So when Christ's clothes were literally stripped away from him, torn by the whips, auctioned off, and he's there, what remains? His righteousness. Christ did the ultimate good for us by giving us this new world that we just read about at the ultimate expense of himself, his own death. So the rod did strike the earth, but Jesus is the one who took the bow, the blow. And on that cross that Jesus was on, that's where God's justice and peace met. That's where they kissed. So now we can run to him. We can be like the nations and rally to him because of what he's done without fear. Outside of Jesus and what he's done, we can't. We're under his justice. But through what he's done, he's given us a peace and given us new hearts that are now, that have the possibility of being orientated towards being delighted in God. We get the righteousness of God. We're saved from our own previous ways of brokenness, saved from our previous world that teaches us to maintain some kind of power or some kind of good image or whatever. And we're saved to a new way to live, to delight in God himself. We're saved to this new world where peace does truly reign over everything. Now this new world is birthed not by a strong person's rise to power, not by a political program, not by a social agenda. This new world is birthed by the birth of that baby, the verse 6, that little child that will lead us. A little child will lead those who were formerly enemies. And of course, we were formerly enemies of God, first and foremost. 
That Jesus was born as a helpless and homeless child to our broken world is the new beginning of a new world where all things really one day will all be set right. They're in the process of being set right now. We know it's not complete yet, but one day they will be. So when we get to eat this bread and drink this wine together, it's a symbol of how this new world breaks into ours now. Just like manna for the, old, the Israelites who were wandering in the desert, pieces of <coughs> that new world break into our current world now. And all of this is made possible by Jesus' body broken and by his blood being poured out. Paying the ultimate cost so that we might be able today to celebrate the goodness that he's given us. So as we eat and drink, um, let's remember what Jesus has done on our behalf. What this chapter is all about. What he's doing and the process of doing and what we as a church are joining in. We're joining in with this is Jesus' mission here. We're joining in with this now. And what will finally be done when the earth is finally filled with the knowledge of the Lord. So if you aren't um, on board with this new world yet, if you haven't submitted to Jesus, this leader, um, don't lie to yourself and take this bread and wine with us. It also um, might be that this is a time to come up and surrender to Jesus, an opportunity for that. And whether you're a believer or not, that's, that's, that's what this table is for, people who have surrendered to Jesus. You don't have to have everything right all the start, but taking this step is a good start to understanding what it means to follow Jesus. And he invites all to his new world, just as we now as a church invite everyone to come together to eat. And for all of us who come up here, it's a symbol of our surrender, a symbol of our hope as we look to our king, as we eat and drink in this new world that he's bringing and will bring. So let me pray.